as a joke, just in case you were, in case you were wondering. I, I think everybody is coming to second service because of the baptism. So um, I'm, I'm glad at least you guys made it. It would uh, be kind of weird preaching if nobody was here. Um, so, of course, the baptism is at the end of second service. Um, and then we were going to do the worship night tonight, but it looks like there's a 90% chance of rain at 4 o'clock. So I think we're going to postpone it. So um, go ahead and not come to that. And we will let you know when, it, when the weather clears up just a little bit. And then remember, there will be uh, food in between services. So they're going to be serving some, uh, a little bit of biscuits and gravy. And um, So hang out, fellowship a little bit. Say hi to people coming in for second service. And um, just enjoy our Sunday together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we need you. We need your spirit. We need your touch in our lives, Lord. And Father, as we um, as we open up Acts chapter fifteen this morning and just see your your disciples at work, Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn the lessons that you have for us, Lord, and that you would help us to walk closer with you this morning. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. So. You remember that last week, as we started Acts chapter 15, we found Paul and Barnabas ministering the gospel. They're back from their world tour, right? They're back from that first mission trip throughout Asia Minor. And overall, that, that mission trip, it was a huge success. Churches were planted. Lives were transformed. The Lord worked many miracles through his disciples. And now they've come back home to Antioch. And at this point, Antioch has really sort of become the, the hub for, for Christian activity. It's the, it's the center of the Christian world at this point. And, and you'll remember that after a while, there was a conflict between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers there in Antioch. We learned last week that, that certain Pharisees who had come to Christ we're having a hard time letting go of the Mosaic law. And you remember for them, it was, it was always Jesus plus. It was Jesus plus the law. It was Jesus plus circumcision. It was Jesus plus keeping the rules. And they told the Gentile believers, look, you're not really a believer if you, if you don't do these things. You're not... You're not fully a believer. You're not experiencing the, the fullness of the gospel. You're not experiencing all of Jesus unless you keep the law as well. And so there was this big battle brewing in the church. And both sides were, were passionate. Both sides were fully convinced that they were right on what turned out to be a a very important doctrinal matter. And they just couldn't come to an agreement. So Paul, he goes up to Jerusalem, you remember, and he meets with the leaders of the church. He consults with James, the half-brother of Jesus, the head of the church. And they discuss whether or not Gentile converts to Christianity need to keep the Jewish law as well. And you'll remember in the end, after 
much discussion and prayer, Peter and James, they end up agreeing with Paul. They end up supporting Paul's position that, that Gentiles indeed don't have to keep the law. James, however, asks for a couple of concessions from the Gentile believers. And so James says, listen, Paul, we're going to ask four things that the Gentile believers not do for the sake of the Jewish Christians. And we saw this last time, and we're going to see it again, that these four things, they're not all necessarily for the church today. But there's a principle behind them that we need to take to heart. So we left off last time in verse 21. And so some of what we're going to look at this morning is sort of Scripture reviewing what just happened. Right? And so unless you think that I am getting forgetful and I, and I don't remember what I taught last week, right? I realize that we're repeating ourselves a little bit. We're going to briefly look at what happened last week. And it was important enough for the Holy Spirit to repeat. So I guess if it was important enough for him to say it twice, it's important for us to, to look at it twice. And so last week we saw what happened, and this week we're going to be looking at a letter the church wrote talking about what happened. So it says in verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them, and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So after the decision was made, they decided to send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. They decided it was wise to send representatives from the church in Jerusalem as well to make sure that no one could question the report that Paul brought back. So they sent two trusted leaders from the church in Jerusalem to go back. They sent Judas, not, not that Judas, right? This is a different Judas. Judas bar Sabbath and Silas. And it's kind of interesting to me too that, that this guy's name was bar Sabbath, which means the son of the Sabbath, right? And it, it kind of seems like if anyone was going to be all about keeping the law, it would have been the son of the Sabbath, right? But they sent him back with Paul to tell them that the Gentiles didn't need to follow the Jewish law. And the letter said this. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. 
that you abstain from what has been offered to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So this letter was sent specifically to the Gentile believers. And James writes, and he says, good news, guys. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the Levitical law. Right? You can, you can eat bacon. Right? You can have lobster. You can eat a cheeseburger. You don't have to conform to Judaism before coming to Christ. And James says, look, these guys who were unsettling your minds, these guys who are teaching you otherwise, we, we never sent them out. They had their own agenda. They were acting on their own authority. They were doing their own thing. And we're sorry that they upset you. We see so often that people, they just want to add a little bit to the gospel. A little bit here, a little bit there, a pinch here, a pinch there. Adding their cultural baggage to the gospel. Adding little rules to the gospel. Adding their preferences to the gospel. Until finally it's, it's no longer the gospel of grace. It's no longer the gospel presented to us by Jesus Christ and by his apostles. That this new gospel that we receive becomes unrecognizable. And this, this new distorted thing, it puts the, 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 the focus, the, the emphasis, the impetus of salvation on, on us instead of on the work of Jesus Christ. And the church here in Jerusalem said, look, it wasn't us doing that. That was just some guys speaking on their own. And James says, look, we want you to know that we fully support Paul. We are of the same mind. We love these guys. We love that, that Paul and Barnabas are risking their lives for the sake of Jesus. We love that they, they're, they're missionaries, that they're, that they're pioneers of the faith. We love that they're out starting churches, making disciples. And he says, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And I think there's an important lesson for us here, something important to note. It wasn't just these guys making decisions. These were men who were filled with the Holy Spirit. These are men who were being led by the Holy Spirit. And that is the only effective way to lead a ministry, right? That's the only effective way to, to, to lead a Christian life is to be led by the Holy Spirit. And, and that's sort of our job as Christians. We need to figure out what the Holy Spirit wants in our lives and we need to submit to that. We need to agree to do whatever the Spirit desires of us. And anything else that we do, it's just, it's a work of the flesh. Anything else that we do outside of the leading of the Spirit, it's just us doing it. 
And if you want to do something that will, that will last into eternity, you need to be guided and directed through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he says, listen, here's what I want. And the leaders agreed. And, and, and they brought their wills and their desires in line with his. And so James, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, says, here's the thing. Here, here's the thing for you Gentile believers. We have a couple requests. And you'll remember them from last week. Don't eat food offered to idols. Don't consume blood. Don't eat meat that was strangled. And don't engage in sexual immorality. And this is an interesting issue. Because here's the deal, right? This was a church that had a lot of Jewish Christians as well as a lot of Gentile Christians. And so remember this list of things that was written so that the Gentile believers would not unnecessarily offend the Jews. Right? If, if these four things had been going on in the church, it would have been very hard for Jews to become believers and to worship and have fellowship. The first thing was eating meat offered to idols. And remember we talked about how, how much of the meat down at the local butcher shop, before it was taken down there to be sold, it would have been offered to, to pagan idols. And remember the Jews, they absolutely abhorred idolatry. Remember earlier on in Jewish history, the Jews were, they were sort of, prone to idolatry, right? They were prone to idol worship. If you look, starting in um, Exodus, remember, Moses is gone for a while, and what happens? Aaron gathers up all the gold and makes a little golden calf, a little idol, and all the people are dancing around naked, worshiping this little idol. You keep going through the book of Judges. It's all about the people falling into idolatry. But remember what happens. Remember, the Lord uses Babylon to discipline his people. And the, pe the Lord's people, the Jews, are carried away to Babylon for 70 years. And during that 70 years where they're being punished for their idolatry, they really, they're, they're cured, right? From that point on, we don't really see the Jewish people falling into idolatry. And, and they were, idolatry, it was, it, it was anathema to them, right? They absolutely hated it. So to the Jews, even to the believing Jews, eating, eating food, eating meat that was offered to idols, it, it violated their conscience. Remember Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 8 that it doesn't make any difference, right? Idols aren't real, and eating food offered to idols isn't going isn't gonna, to, isn't a sin. But he says for the sake of weaker believers, I won't do it. Right? Basically, he says, I'd rather be a vegetarian. I'd rather go vegan than to cause someone to stumble in their faith. The second thing, consuming blood. Again, that was a, a serious violation of, of the Levitical law. And that was because the consumption of blood, it was part of pagan worship. Consuming blood... It, it, it would have sort of been along those same lines. It would have fallen in line with idolatry. The third thing was they weren't to eat meat that was strangled. And remember that, 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 
Levitical law concerning diet, that kosher law, it wasn't just what you ate, but it was how you prepared the food that you were going to eat. The fourth thing was sexual immorality. And, and again, they weren't just talking about sex outside of marriage. I, everybody knew in the church that they, they all understood that, that sex was to be between one man and one woman inside the context of marriage. And so this wasn't a huge shock to them, this rule. It wasn't like Paul was teaching them previously that it was okay to fool around and the church had to correct them. Right? They all got that. But remember the culture. Right? It was a, a very promiscuous culture. And, and sexual activity was very often associated with, with pagan worship and the temple prostitutes. And so this is most likely a reference to that, to not engage in, in sexual activity as part of worshiping false gods. Again, falling in line with that, that whole thing of idolatry. How do these four things apply to us today? Are we allowed to consume blood? Can we eat meat that was strangled, that was offered to idols? Right, we talked before about cultural sins versus biblical sins. Right? And there are some things that are wrong for all believers throughout all of history, anywhere you go, right? Lying is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. Murder is always wrong. Disrespecting your parents, worshiping idols, adultery, taking the Lord's name in vain. Those are always sins. Those are never okay in any context, right? Those are, those are biblical, eternal, always sins. But there are other sins that are sort of, I don't know, we can call them cultural sins, right? The sins that are, that are wrong with it within certain cultural contexts. And I think that, um, take for example something like smoking, right? In, in times past, many of the great theologians were smokers, right? Just to be clear, we're talking about tobacco. We're not talking about the dank emporium down the street there or anything like that, right? But, you know, these guys, they, they smoke pipes. They smoke cigars. And in that culture, there was nothing wrong with that. It didn't, it didn't offend anyone. Right? In our culture today, smoking in the church is it's kind of taboo a little bit. Right? A lot of people feel like, you know, Christians can't smoke. Is smoking itself a sin? It's kind of stupid. Right? Knowing what we know about it, knowing the harm that it does to the body, but it's not necessarily a sin in and of itself. The Bible never forbids it. But if my smoking a cigarette causes someone else to not be able to worship, if it causes a weaker believer who doesn't have the same freedom that I have, if it causes them to smart start smoking even though they know that it's wrong, and it violates their conscience, it causes them to sin. Another example is tattoos, right? Spurgeon, he puffed away and nobody cared. But if he had had a big spider web tattoo on his neck, right, and blue hair and a nose ring, people would have been offended by that. 
right? And today, it's not a big deal. Half the population has tattoos. No one really cares. It's not, it's not really wrong. And so what I'm saying is there are, there are some things that are always wrong. And there are some things that aren't wrong, but we need to choose not to do them for the sake of weaker believers or unbelievers who might be unnecessarily offended. Right? Some things, they're not biblically wrong, but they're still wrong for some people because they believe it's wrong and it violates their conscience. There are some things that we as mature believers have the liberty to do. We have the freedom to do, but out of love for others, we choose not to do them. We choose to surrender our freedoms for the sake of other believers. Right? In our culture, meat offered to idols is and it's not really something that we deal with. Consuming blood, that's gross. But none of us associate that with pagan worship. Right? It's not really an issue. Sexual immorality, right? And, and we don't really associate that with pagan worship today. But it's still something that we need to be careful of, isn't it? Because our, our culture is growing more and more sexualized every day. You know, all around us, TV, internet, media, the way people behave, the way people dress, right? We see Christians who are, who are getting sucked into this all the time because it's so pervasive in our culture, people think, you know, it's not really that big of an a deal. You know, it's not real. God doesn't really care that much about it. You know, I can, I can hook up with her. I can watch that. I can be unfaithful to my spouse, you know, and, and God doesn't really care. Because we're so inundated with it. And I think that we, that we need to be very careful that we maintain purity and holiness, that we're set apart. We as believers, we need to be careful how we present ourselves, how we protect ourselves. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. So they leave at once. They're in a hurry to, to tell the church there in Antioch the good news. And remember, this is a, this is a different age. And, and I think it, it might be hard for some of us to understand. But there hasn't always been TV. And there hasn't always been TikTok. And there hasn't always been Twitter. And Jesus didn't have a Gmail account. Paul didn't have an iPhone. Information, it had, to, it had to travel on foot. And Antioch was a couple hundred miles away from Jerusalem. And that information, it had to be hand-delivered. It had to be walked there. It had to get there on the back of a donkey or a camel. And so the guys immediately left for Antioch. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Right? There was a huge sense of relief in the church. You know, there's sort of a, this collective sigh. You know, we, we've been doing it right. We're, we are, we're really saved. We really are citizens of the kingdom of God. And we don't have to get circumcised. Right? That's great news too, they said. We're saved just as we are. 
sometimes when we talk with people about matters of faith, they get very angry, don't they? Sometimes you share your faith, you talk about Jesus, you talk about the gospel, and people get irrationally, irrationally angry. You know, people, they, 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 get, they get red in the face and they yell and they're, they're so filled with, with hate and rage and anger just because you tell them that Jesus loves them and that he died for their sins. Why do people get so upset over matters of faith, over questions about their faith? I think it's because it's calling into the into question the, the, the very core of, of who they are, right? You're calling into question everything that they believe. You're calling into question their eternal destiny. Right? If you ever maybe talk to a Mormon or a, or a Jehovah's Witness or, or Muslims or even other Christians who believe differently and you tell them, and you might be doing it nicely out of love even, but, but you tell them that they're wrong in what they believe, right? You're not just telling them that they are wrong about a math problem, right? You're not just telling them that they are wrong about directions on how to get to the mall. You're telling them that they are wrong about the most important, most crucial belief that they have. You're telling them that they're wrong on a matter that will determine their eternal destiny their eternal destination. You're telling them that they are wrong on a matter that they have held close to their heart their whole lives. And, and I think that that's, that there was a lot of angst and tension here in the church in Antioch, right? They had, they had put their eternal hope in, in, in this thing and these other people are coming and telling them that it's wrong. And they were, they were concerned, they were upset. And so when Paul and Barnabas and Silas and, um, and um, Judas get there and tell them, you're right, you're okay, you believe in the right things, there's just this, this collective sigh of relief among the people. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers and those who had sent them. Now some of your translations omit verse 34. It says, however, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Now remember the, the position of a prophet. It's not just the foretelling of the future. Right? You know, a lot of times we think of a prophet, we think of, we think of Daniel or Ezekiel, you know, these guys that are, that are laying out the what's going to happen in the future. But a prophet, more often than not, is just one who, who proclaims the, the word of God to the people. Right? The position, the, the job description of a prophet is, is much like the, the job of a pastor today, to proclaim the word of God. Except I think that, that the position of a prophet was probably more more divinely empowered, right? More divinely inspired. The position of a prophet is one who declares the word of the Lord directly from the Lord. And these two fellows here, they were prophets. 
proclaiming the word of God to the people of God. And they were there for a while in Antioch, teaching and preaching, and then at least one of them headed back to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. So we see that, that Paul and Barnabas, they, they plant themselves in Antioch for a little while, and they continue teaching and instructing the people, proclaiming the gospel message, discipling the new believers, building up the church there. And I think that this is why the church in Antioch was, was the hub of Christianity in those days. Because we had this group, it says many others, there was a large group of men who were declaring the word of God to the people, instructing and discipling the believers in the faith. But after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. So some time passed. And Paul said, Remember all those churches that we started? Remember all those believers in Galatia? You know, I, I've been praying for them, and, and they've been on my heart. I wonder how they're doing. We should go check on them. We should, go, we should make sure that they are still holding to the faith. Now, remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is talking about all the, all the trials that he's been through. He's talking about the death threats that he endured, how he'd been beaten times without number, how he'd been shipwrecked a few times, how he'd been abandoned, cold and naked, how he'd been in, in peril in his travels. And he's going on with this, this big description of all the things that he's been through. And then verse 28 he says, And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul is, is, is constantly concerned for the churches that he's planted and left behind. And, and as a pastor, as, as a church planter, I, 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 I understand that. right? I invested a, a large portion of my life establishing a church in a, in a foreign country. And I love the people there, and, I, and I'm very concerned for their spiritual well-being. And, you know, for me, this morning while I was kind of reviewing my notes, I clicked on Facebook, and I was watching their live stream of their service. Yesterday I was chatting with a couple people from the church. It's, it's easy for me to communicate with them. You know, I, I, I'm in touch, and I kind of know how they're doing, and I know what to pray for. Paul, of course... He couldn't easily do that, could he? Right? They were spread out, no easy means of communication. So Paul says, you know, we should go and check on them. We should make sure that there's no false doctrine. We should make sure that they are still holding true to the scriptures and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now remember, Mark had started out with them on their first journey. But halfway through, Mark left. Right? He abandoned them. 
it was too hard maybe. There was too much persecution. Maybe his feet hurt. He was tired of walking. Uh, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. Maybe the accommodations weren't up to par. Maybe he missed his mom's cooking. For whatever reason, Mark went home. And so here in verse 37, Barnabas wants to, to give Mark a second chance. And Paul says, there is no way in the fiery pits of Hades that I am taking that guy with me on this mission trip. And verse 39 it says, and there rose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. This is such a sad commentary, isn't it? Seeing these long-time ministry partners dividing over this issue. Some of your translations say that they strongly disagreed. There, and another place is translated violent anger. Right? This was a heated argument, and words were exchanged here. And, and not the nice kind, right? Not the Hallmark card kind. Right? Paul found Mark unworthy for ministry, unreliable, untrustworthy, and he refused to travel with, with Mark. And you can kind of get the impression throughout you know, the scriptures that, that Paul was a little bit pig-headed sometimes, wasn't he? A little bit stiff-necked sometimes. He was a little bit stubborn. And he says, I'm not going to do it. And so Barnabas says, I am going to do it. Right? And so they separated. And Barnabas and Mark sail off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. We learn in Colossians chapter 4 that John Mark was actually the cousin of Barnabas. He was family. So it kind of gives us a little insight into the situation here. And Barnabas and Paul, they, they're arguing about this matter. And, and the, the, the disagreement we saw was so sharp that they separated. They went their separate ways. And, and I want to make two points as we close this passage. First, I don't think that this division was from the Lord. And if it was from the Lord, it certainly wasn't supposed to be this way. The way that it played out wasn't from the Lord. If the Lord did want them to separate and make two teams, I know that it wasn't through strife and arguing and, and, and violent anger. You know, if it was the Lord's will for them to go separate ways, it wasn't them to leave on bad terms, dissension among the brothers. Because that's never, that's never the way of God. Right? The psalmist said, Psalm 133.1, how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. It wasn't his plan for, for division and sharp disagreement. But once it was done, it was done, right? But Paul writes in Romans, God works all things together for good for those who love him, 
and are called according to his purposes. Right? This division, it wasn't God's perfect will. But it happened, and God used it. Why, why, why is that point so important? Why, do I, why am I dwelling on that so much? Here's why. We've all been Barnabas and Saul. We've all failed. We've all fallen short. We've all done less than the Lord's perfect will for our lives. And frankly, some of us have really screwed up our lives. Some of us are, are covered in scars, spiritually, emotionally, and even physically sometimes. Right? Some of us have had other people do us great harm, and we're messed up from it. But do you know what? The Lord can take those things. He can take our failures. He can take our shortcomings. He can take the things that we have done. He can take the things that were done to us. And he can repurpose them. And he can make something good and useful and perfect out of them. He can take the bad things in our lives and work them into something good. He, your mistakes, they can, be, they can be redeemed. They can be used for his glory. He can use your mistakes to help others not make those same mistakes. He can use your mistakes to help lead other people to a, to a place of, of recovery and freedom in the Lord. Right? Maybe you've been wounded. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been abused. But the Lord can use those things. He can use you to be a support to others to those who have been through the same thing or going through the same thing or are hurting and lost and confused. I love this verse. I, I quote it all the time. It's one of my very favorite Bible verses. Isaiah 61.3. I think we talked about it a few weeks back. But I think it's such a, a, a beautiful picture, a beautiful snapshot of what the gospel does when it's given room to work in our lives. Isaiah 63, 61.3 in the King James, it says this. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Isaiah says the Lord will give you beauty for ashes. He'll take the burnt up, burnt out, broken, destroyed things in your life and he'll make something beautiful out of them. And not only will he make something beautiful out of them, but in the Hebrew, that, that word for crown there, or the word for beauty, it means a, a beautiful crown. That word for beauty, often it's translated a, a beautiful headdress. Or a crown of beauty. And what that says is this. The Lord isn't just going to salvage those, those things in your life. He says the Lord is going to take those things and he's going to make them the best, the most attractive thing about you. That's wonderful, isn't it? The NLT says this. He's going to give us joyous blessing instead of mourning. Festive praise 
instead of despair. You may be in despair. You may be in mourning. But the Lord wants to give you joyous blessing, festive praise. He wants to give you a future and a hope, he'll later on say in Jeremiah. You may feel like a blade of grass that's been trampled on. But he's going to make you, he says, a, a, a tree of righteousness. All for his glory. Now listen, the Lord didn't cause those bad things to happen. He didn't cause this hurt. He didn't cause division. But he can use those things. He didn't cause Paul and Barnabas to split. But he used it, didn't he? He made two teams. And we don't hear a lot about what happened to Barnabas and Mark because Acts primarily focuses on Paul. But the Lord used these guys as well. The Lord used Paul's new team as well. Right? The Lord can use the broken things in our lives for good if we're willing to be used, if we're willing to surrender them to him. The second point, the last point, John Mark, he was a failure, wasn't he? John Mark folded under pressure and ran home to his mom. Was Paul wrong in not wanting to take John Mark along with him? I don't know. I don't know. But I know this. 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul is requesting that, that Mark, the same John Mark, come and assist him. Paul says, bring Mark, for he is useful to me in ministry. Even after the failure, now understand this point, even after Mark failed, he was restored, and he was useful to the kingdom of God. And that sort of ties in with the last point, doesn't it? About God repurposing our failures. The Bible is, is full of men who failed the Lord and were used later on. Abraham repeatedly failed, didn't he? Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, Samson, Peter, Paul, John Mark. They all failed. They all messed up. And they all repented and were used greatly by God afterwards. And I want you to see this, church. I want you to understand this. Failure does not mean that you aren't a Christian. Failure doesn't mean that you can never be used by God again. Failure means that you are an imperfect, broken human being who is desperate for the grace of God. And I have said this over and over again. We serve a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. We've all failed. 
But after there's genuine repentance and a genuine change of heart, God can and will restore you and use you again. And that's the good news. That's the gospel message. That Jesus died to redeem and restore broken men. And that truly is glorious news, isn't it? That's the gospel. Jesus Christ died. He shed his blood. He went to the cross so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be made new, so that we can be restored, and that we can find new life in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for grace. We thank you that you choose to use us. Uh, we're so infinitely undeserving. And Father, I just pray for anyone here who's, who's struggling with, with past failures, Lord, and who's struggling with the brokenness of their lives and spiritual and emotional scars, Lord, that you would help them to experience that principle in Isaiah 61.3, that, that you would give them beauty for ashes and joy for mourning, Lord that they would experience your goodness, Lord, and that you would restore them and that you would use them in, in powerful and mighty ways for your kingdom, Father. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.